Let's pray. This morning I just visited the prayer corner over here and saw all the prayer requests laid out on the table. Father in heaven, we come before you with all these requests in our in our community, a lot of people carrying a lot of heavy burdens and weight, as Matt Kenny was saying earlier. To the one who overcame, we lift up all these things, asking for healing from cancer, asking for healing of broken identity, asking for uh, just freedom to be seen and known by you. One of them specifically I saw, I just said, I want to know your love. We open our hearts to you today, Heavenly Father, to come and tell us your truth. Tell us who we really are, how you see us, so that we then can go and take your eyes out into this world. Speak to us even now, Lord, as you've been doing for your church for thousands of years, giving direction and wisdom and guidance. We look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a band we have. This is good. This is good. Go ahead and give them a donation later. As a community, we have been studying the Gospel of John, and so I'd like to invite you to turn to John chapter 16. As such, John chapter 16, I'll be reading the the end of the chapter. This will conclude the what we've been calling, or what scholars call the upper room discourse, the discourse part of this section. Chapter 17 is, of the whole chapter is a prayer um, of Jesus, and we'll get into that, but I just want to point out that this is the last bit of teaching and coaching that Jesus gives his disciples the night he was arrested. I also had a thought that could be, I think, really encouraging to all of us is as this is sort of the conclusion to um, these words, if four or five of you could, throughout the course of the message today, think of a verse from John 13 to 16, from this whole discourse that has meant something to you uh, or been encouraging to you, and then we could read it, or or I would would ask you to read it out loud um, at the end when we pray together. Is that clear enough? Raise your hand if you'd be willing to read a verse. Doug, thank you. A couple of you? Okay, I just want to make sure it's just not me. Okay. Um, and I'll, get, I'll tee you up when the time comes. And then when you read, just read loud and proud. The people online, they want to be able to hear somehow. So uh, uh, anyways, with that being said, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. In John chapter 16, I'll start at verse 16. Jesus then went on to say, in a little while you'll see me no more, then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you'll see me no more, then after a little while you'll see me, because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean, a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, So he spoke into it. He said to them, you guys asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more and after a little while you'll see me. I'm telling you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. 
The woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because her joy that the child is born into the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. You will rejoice. No one will take your joy away. In that day, you will no longer ask me of anything. I'm telling you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you haven't asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but tell you plainly about my Father. And in that day, you'll ask in my name, but I'm not saying that. I'll ask the Father on your behalf. No. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied? The time is coming, and in fact has now come, where you will be scattered each to your own home and leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Amen. Verse that I really have in my heart to just continue to reiterate to you in, in, in a lot of different ways today is that one, verse 33. If you're taking notes, 1633. I noticed as I you know, was thinking through this verse this week and letting it marinate, or some of us around here say letting it ferment, that I've been misquoting this verse sort of in my mind. It's subtle, but I, I'd like to point it out. I was uh, just reiterating the verse, and I realized I was saying it like this. I have told you these things that you might have peace. For in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Now notice there's a little piece of that verse that I left out, and it's, and it's this. I have told you these things that you might have peace in me. And I don't know if it's just me being lazy or if it was just an accident, but I got really convicted in that moment where I thought, it is tempting for us in a time, like in times like these, to just try and find peace anywhere we can find it. But what I want to talk to you about today is seeking the peace that we can find in Christ. What is that peace? How can that peace be a part of your life and your lifestyle? It's a peace that transcends understanding. It's a peace that calms the storm just with the word. This is the peace of Christ. Well, in order for us to, I think, really engage with this peace, there's an assumption that's made, and it's this, that we need it. Jesus says right here in this verse, 1633, I'm giving you this peace because in this world, you will have trouble. I know that now in our current times, it's not very hard for me to sort of convince you that in this world, you will have trouble. But I'd like to be a little more specific about what that trouble is. I mean, if you've lived a life like me, you've been in trouble a lot. 
what kind, of tr- what kind of trouble are we talking about, you know? No prophet here. Um, in this world, you have trouble. Some of your translations, this word for trouble, might be tribulation. Um, this word is used by John only two times. And it's both are in the chapter that we just read, chapter 16. You might have not noticed it, though, because it's translated in verse 21b, uh, when she gives birth, she forgets her anguish. That's that word for trouble, or anguish. If you look this word up in a Greek dictionary, it will say a very simple definition. Pressure. Hard-pressed. And oppression. I like that because I feel like that there is a lot of pressure that's going around in this world right now. And it's not the good kind of pressure where you get a little responsibility in life, you feel a little pressure, you feel like, you know, you don't want to mess it up or, you know, you're starting your family and you're feeling like, yeah, that's good pressure. This is a different type of pressure. Jesus says this pressure comes from the world. Listen to one of those tricky words, world. As Rod said three weeks ago, this is one of the most common words that the writer John uses. He uses it all very, in, in different ways throughout the Gospel of John. This is not the, like, for God so loved the world. World. John is using this term in a way here to refer to the system of the world. In other places in the New Testament, the technical term for this is stoicheia. It's translated the elemental spiritual forces of this world. These forces are fallen and have been manipulated by figures that the Apostle Paul calls the rulers and authorities, the powers and principalities. They manipulate the stoiche, they, they manipulate the force behind the world to, to, to create chaos, destruction, and devastate us. You might be thinking, Dan, why isn't there like a book of the Bible about this type of thing? Well, I think the reason for that is all throughout the Bible, it's assumed. There's something going on behind the scenes. You might have seen this in in Daniel uh, when the angels are talking to Daniel. And and one of them was like, I got held up by another person, a force that was at work over the province of uh, Persia. You might, I know that that was a very obscure reference. Okay, but throughout the Bible, there's an assumption about angels or about demonic forces or about this negative impact or influence in this world. You might choose to tell yourself that this is not a reality. But let me ask you this. Where do you think all the confusion is coming from in our world today? There's a lot of confusion that's going around and an excessive amounts. And excessive confusion leads to despair. Where do you think? I mean, some of us might choose to think that this is from a small group of people in a dark room somewhere called the Illuminati or something like that. I choose to think that actually it's bigger than that and it's been happening for thousands of years. There is a force and a movement of evil behind the scenes that is trying to dismantle the kingdom of God. Trying but failing, but trying nonetheless. There's no group of individuals sitting in a back room somewhere thinking, how can we in 20 years dismantle this God-honoring, beautiful thing called marriage? And go from a point where this was something that, that, that like the Western culture celebrated and now is something that it's just like, yeah, take it or leave it. Maybe it's not even worth it. 
Who's pulling the strings here? Who's pulling the strings on some of these cosmic issues or worldwide issues that we look at and that cause us to feel despair and frustration? There is a work, there, there is a force at work here that's causing pressure globally and individually. I mean, some of you might experience pressure individually and you just know where it's coming from. I know I do. There's a lot of times where I'm looking in the mirror thinking, why do I feel this pressure right now? Where is that coming from? Who told me that? Some of us hear things like pressure about time is running out. You only live once. You're only young now. You should live for yourself now. Do the things for yourself now that you won't be able to do later. That's a big millennial thing. Uh, There's a a phrase that's rampant in our culture right now, lurking behind a lot of our thinking. What if? What if you chose the wrong spouse? You might be happier with this one. What if you chose the wrong career? You You might be happier here. What if you did this or what if you did that? causing so many people to get fog in their minds, panic in their chests, and it's, and it's really a, a ruse, a clever ruse, to get so many of us to stop focusing on Christ and just keep focusing on yourself. Just keep looking at yourself because what the Stoichia wants is for you to bear the pressure, to put that weight upon you individually and the weight of us, on us to solve all these problems. Well, what I want to talk to you about today if any of this, even just a little bit, makes sense to you, is this line. The world wants to give you pressure, but Christ wants to give you peace. He went through a lot of, he did a lot of things to bring us peace. The more we continue to go to the world for our, our validation, and our security, it's just going to be more and more pressure. And I want to point that out as we go. Before I do that, I'd like to notice in the line, 1633, Jesus said, I have said these things to you. I just want to remind you, what are the things that he said? As we've been looking at this, I'd like to do a quick review of 13 to six, chapter 13 to 16, and I'll try and not get too specific, so I don't want to steal your thunder if you're going to read a verse later, <laughs> generally speaking. Chapter 13 is the hinge point for the whole book of John. We saw in the first 12 chapters this awesome miraculous signs ministry uh, to the crowds and, and it was public and amazing. And then all of a sudden, chapter 13, the door closes to the room and we're, we're in the room alone with Jesus and his disciples. 13 famous, famously starts off by saying, and now Jesus knew his hour had come to depart from this world and return to the Father. Having loved his own, he loved him to the end. They began a meal. I don't think it's, I don't think you can overstate the importance of the context of this meal. They're celebrating a biblical feast, the Passover, okay? The Passover has become such an important deal because for some reason, this, is the, this was the feast that Jesus chose to marry the cross to. This is the context that Jesus chose to put at the high point of human history, Passover. You can sum up what the Passover is in one word. Freedom. The plagues are about freedom. The lamb is about freedom. This whole parting the Red Sea is about freedom from slavery of Egypt. In this context, Jesus also created our, our bread and wine communion. 
And this too is about freedom that he is providing us. The freedom that Jesus brought though was a lot uh, bigger than the freedom that a lot of the people were looking for at the time. And Jesus then at this meal does one of his most profound acted out parables um, in his whole ministry. Think about it. He is one of the most important people in their life that they've ever met. And if you ask the apostles now, easily the most important person in the world. He gets up from the table. He takes off his outer garment, puts on a towel, grabs a bowl of water, and starts washing his disciples' feet. In essence, to say, what do you do with the freedom that you're getting? My followers don't use their freedom so that people can serve them. My followers pick up a towel and say, I know that I'm free. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to wash the feet of the people who are around me. Wash one another as I have washed you. And so then Jesus begins to uh, develop a little bit of his heart. But we can see that Judas already has it in his heart to betray him. He doesn't like this kind of talk about washing each other's feet. He's got something else in mind, and he takes off. And now we're down to 11. Jesus then begins to, to huddle up, and he has a ch group chat with his disciples in, in encouraging them, enforcing what the, the bottom line is that he's looking for, for them to follow. He says over and over again, this is all I want you to remember. My command is that you love one another. If you get lost, if you get separated, if you're not sure what you're supposed to do, love one another as I have loved you, so you shall love one another. This is how the world's going to know that you're my disciples. Don't worry. You're going to have everything that you need to be able to do this. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to send my spirit. It's going to, uh, it, you won't be alone in this. And as he's coaching and reiterating and helping them out, they decide to leave the upper room. Now, the upper room, as Rod pointed out uh, four or five weeks ago, might just be a reference to the area of Jerusalem that they're, that they're in, upper, the upper city. There's a room in the upper city. And I like this theory because you may or may not know this, but if you imagine the picture that Jesus put up of Jerusalem or if you look up um, uh, first century Jer Jerusalem rendition, there will be a very elaborate bridge that was built from the upper city right to the temple. You might, this is a total side note, you might recognize this if you have ever seen the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall as it's called. Up in the uh, front left corner as you're looking at it, there's these arches and it kind of looks like a tunnel. People like go in there and pray. Those arches which are now like, you kind of have to duck to get under them. They used to be at the time of Christ, the, floor, the ground level was way lower than it is now and it, that would be those very arches are the arches that support this bridge from the upper city to the temple. And why do they do this? This is the reason why I brought this up. Because the rich people in that time were, wanted to have a way to get to the temple mount without having to uh, touch people who might be unclean or, you know, brush shoulders with the commonwealth. And so they would wash in their own houses. Mind you of anybody. And they would then walk across this big bridge to get to the Temple Mount, Wilson's Arch. Reason why I bring that up is because that spits you out right next to the most magnificent building in their country, the Temple. On a 15-foot-high platform, this building that's 150 feet tall 
And it's these pillars in front of the doorway that have kind of like these pillars with the lights wrapped around them, these golden vines with grapes and leaves. And if you were wealthy and wanted to make a donation, you could actually donate a leaf, a gold leaf, to be put on these vines. And it wrapped the pillars and then also went across the door. And this was an homage to the Maccabean um, revolt because this became kind of like their symbol. Um, We'll save that for another day. Point is, might be a good time to start pointing out vines and fruit and leaves and branches and might be right where they were. They're on this place, the Temple Mount. You might think, Dan, why would Jesus go to the Temple Mount? He knows he's going to be arrested. Why not hide? Well, he might be hiding, actually, because if you uh, consider the fact that this week, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate. And where do they go after dinner? I've experienced five biblical feasts in Jerusalem in modern day myself. And every time after dinner, you want to be down by the Western Wall where they, where they worship now. Because it's a, it's a massive celebration. Rejoicing, singing, ch- hugging, cheering, crowd surfing. It's all happening down there. And so imagine Jesus is hiding in plain sight in a sense because he's in a room, on the Temple Mount with thousands of people. This is notable because the discussion kind of does change. After uh, 15, as you see, end of 15, beginning of 16, what's the subject of conversation that Jesus brings up? The crowd. The people. And he's telling them, don't trust the crowd. Don't trust this big, momentous group because what we're about to do is initiate something that's going to seem like a massive threat to them. What we're about and what is not what they're expecting and hoping us to be about. And it's going to get hard. They're going to turn against you. They're going to kick you out of here. They're going to kill you at times. But they don't know what I'm doing. 16 verse 4. They don't know me and they do not know the Father. So he's respecting the disciples enough to tell them about what's about to happen. And he's coaching them and and empowering them to be able to to weather this storm. Which leads me to the final thoughts here in chapter 16. Ask yourself, why did Jesus choose these things to say as his his final wrap-up for this whole night, this whole evening? The first thing that I noticed that Jesus talks about is joy. And it's a joy that's specifically rooted in resurrection. What does that have to do? What would that do to to, um, encourage his disciples? I also noticed that Jesus reaffirms their prayer life built on the love that God has for them. And then don't, you know... Don't look away before they have this moment of revelation about who Jesus is based on the fact that he knows the future. He knows where they're going. What would that mean to encourage them? I'd like to talk to you about those three things. What is this joy that's rooted in resurrection? Well, you might have noticed Jesus gives them like a glimpse of what's about to happen. In a little while, you won't see me, but then in a little while, you will. And they... They're getting kind of frustrated. This is sort of puzzling language. 
It makes a lot of sense to you and I. We know how this story goes. But they are like, Jesus, I don't even, what are you talking about? And he does not want them to continue to live in confusion. Uh, thank the Lord. He is not like the Stoichia. He doesn't like confusion. He speaks into it. And he says to them, okay, I'm going to break this down for you. You're wondering what I meant by this? And Jesus gives them an example about childbirth, which is obviously resonating with 11 young men. That's right where we would have gone. You ever wonder why verse 30 seems so shocking, right? When they go, now you're speaking in real uh, talk because that was figurative before, right? The, the, with the childbirth thing, that was a figure of speech. This is real, right, Jesus? Okay. Yeah, it's actually a very profound example. As he's talking, he says, there is this anguish that comes upon a woman before she gives birth. This labor pains, it is agonizing. But when the baby is born, something happens that is unbelievable. Chelsea and I talk about this at times about our daughter who was born. When Penny was born, our lives were changed forever. In, a, in many different ways. We sometimes reiterate to one another, this person, didn't exist. This person now exists. And we believe in, in eternity. We believe in uh, life after. This is going to be a part of our relationship forever. Something that wasn't and was born has now become something permanent and been created in this world. And the reason why I say that is because notice how in verse 22, Jesus says, yeah, you are going to have the same pain. You're going to feel like this is, uh, this is killing you and, and, and agonize over it. But when you see me, the grief will be turned to joy. Why? Because when they see Jesus, they are going to see a resurrection. And when they see this resurrection, it is going to be like, when, it's like Jesus is saying, I'm about to do something here. And when that is accomplished, there's going to be something that has been brought into the world that's going to be there forever. Something that was not there before is now going to be there. And you're going to see that and it's going to bring you so much joy. Resurrection is now a possibility. Resurrection is now on the table. But then he says, this joy is going to have a specific uh, attribute to it. It cannot be taken from you. Why did he say that? I think that Jesus is talking about resurrection in such a way that he's talking about irrevocable joy in a sense. Because the threat that threatens all of us is death. Think about the joylessness in our world right now. Where is it coming from? There's so many people walking around because their joy, the things they cherish, the things they treasure uh, are being taken from them or are being threatened by something, a big, real thing, terrorizing this world, death. I don't know about you, but there's been a lot of talk about death in this last year. I can, I can remember turning on the news and just one, at one point realizing, I have this thing just in my face saying death toll. And it was affecting me. And it's, it is a terror. I, I, what are we going to do about death? Well, ask the world. What's your answer? What is your answer to death? 
and the world will do nothing but put more and more pressure on you. It's, there is no answer to death. But what the world is going to do is going to tell you, take on more things to yourself, take on more burdens to yourself so that you can escape it somehow in little ways or escape it somehow for a little bit longer. But really, we have no answer for it. But I'm here to tell you that when the world wants to just put pressure on you, Christ wants to put peace in you. He wants to tell you that actually he has an answer. He has overcome that great threat to our joy, that great threat to our lives. He has overcome death. Now, what does this mean for us? As you go and live your life, does this mean, therefore, that we then just act reckless and irresponsible? I, don't hear me say that. I'm not saying because there's a resurrection, that means just, uh, you know, don't wear a seatbelt or whatever. Like, no, the resurrection inspires us not to be reckless, but to be radical. Radical in a sense, because when you interact with the world, it's not going to be, I was about to say rational, and that's too many R's. Reckless, (laughs) radical, rational. Maybe I should have wrote that. Um, the world is not going to look at you and say, yeah, explain to me how resurrection works. This isn't how this conversation goes. The world looks at us to show the power of resurrection in our lives. <laughs> and I'd be happy to tell you right now many examples of people in this church who are inspired by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who have that peace inside of them that that says, okay, I am not going to make it my life over your life. What I'm gonna do is pick up my cross and follow my savior who promises me the hope of resurrection. If you wanna show the power of resurrection in your life, then pick up the towel and the bowl and say, how can I bring uh, acts of service into this world? I'm so proud of the fact that in the last two weeks, a whole group of people in this church have turned this uh, church into a warming center for people who don't have a place to go in the cold. I am so proud that even this last Wednesday, faithfully, people are coming to give blood at our blood drives to help supply uh, blood that's dwindling in in our hospitals. I am so proud of the medical people that are here, of the doctors, of the police officers, of the teachers, and the people who are just trying to figure out how to help children out of this uh, world that they're in right now of seclusion. People who have opened up your homes in this church for short circles and meals just to show small acts of hospitality. All based on the the fact that you believe in in this resurrected Christ. And he compels us to go and to show that love to to people in this world who need it. And if that doesn't get you fired up right now, I don't know what will. Why not just give yourselves a round of applause to encourage one another. Why not just clap right now for the people that I was just describing to you in this church. Let them know that it does matter. There is an oppression in our world right now, and you guys are fighting against it. The world wants you to have nothing but pressure, but you guys are bringing the peace of Christ into this world, and it makes all the difference. That joy can't be taken from you because he overcame death, the biggest threat. Where, O death, is your sting? Second thing, to me, maybe even more important, but it's not, it's just to me it is, is um, the prayer life that Jesus continues to reinforce. 
As you can see in uh, verse 26 and 27, even before that, 24, 25, Jesus is talking about prayer. You might think, good grief. This is the third chapter in a row that he's pretty much said the same thing. Ask me anything. I call it the undeniable prayer. He's talking about praying in such a way, in a context, that he will not withhold from you. If you're looking for more information on it, you can go back to, uh, you know, work that we've done in chapter 14 and 15. But suffice it to say that if you're in a context of trying to love this world and do what Jesus said for you to do, by all means, ask for support. Ask for help. But what I found specifically notable about this group of uh, verses where Jesus is talking about prayer in chapter 16 is verse 27. He essentially says prior to that that there's coming a time where the veil is going to be torn. If there's any confusion in this world about who God is and how he views you and who you are, this is about to go away. And you can come straight to the Lord, straight to your Father, for he himself loves you because you've loved me. Now, just a cursory reading of this, I thought, this is kind of a contradiction of that verse in 1 John. You guys know this one? We love because he loved us. Why does this one say, I love you because you loved the Bible? It's a contradiction. I'm just kidding. I looked into these words here, and it's actually different words, which you might be interested to know. The, the word in 1 John for uh, love is the general word for love. Kind of like the love that Jesus says to love your enemies with in general. This is a specific word for love. It happens to be my favorite one, phileo. Philadelphia, same word, Philly, phileo. This is the love of loyalty. This is the love of a, a passionate connection between brothers and sisters and best friends. I like to call it the ride or die love. You know the expression, to ride or die? It's an expression that says, I'm going to be with you no matter what comes. For example, some of you might be excited about a sporting event today. Now, you might just love, in general, football. That's fine. Not me, but that's fine. You might love it. However, I have noticed that there are some people who are like Michigan fans, and one of the Michigan boys is on whatever team, doesn't really matter, he's in the Super Bowl, and therefore, there's a love and a loyalty and a passion because of Tom Brady. I think, right? I'm, it's not me, I'm just saying, I, I'm trying to connect with you. Okay, so that love is sometimes violent. It's sometimes passionate. It's like, you don't even know the guy, but you love him. It's my guy. You love music. Some people love it in general. I know I'm ranting and raving about this. I just want to make sure you understand. You love music, but then you hear Taylor Swift's coming to town, or uh, I shouldn't use her. Jimmy World's coming to town, and you're like, I'm loving it. I can't wait. I'm going to be there. Anna Lauder came to my office this week for a podcast with me and Matt. And here's something crazy that happened. She comes into my office, and I have this painting on the wall that was more or less left here, okay? It wasn't, but the guy who painted it, I'm just like, hey, you want that? He's like, yeah, no, you can have it. And I put it in my office. I love art. I think it's cool. I don't really know this guy that much, but she walks in and is her favorite artist. 
She blew her mind. She's freaking out. I can't believe you have this. How can I get that? Can I get the, can I, we, I gave it to her. I'm like, hey, you can have it. You love it. You love him. It's your favorite. Don't pass this verse by. Jesus is trying to affirm something deep. And prayer, it doesn't get more intimate and personal than prayer. And Jesus wants to reinforce that and say, guess what? For those of you who have me, hold me in a special place in your heart. The Father wants you to know he has a special place for you. You're his Tom Brady. And the world is going to tell you too much. It's Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> Thank you. The world is going to tell you, you, you are not a favorite of God. You got to clean yourself up. You got to clean your speech. You're not like that close with him. I mean, you might know, but I mean, you've got to actually uh, come to the Lord in a certain way, or you have to cover your back in a certain way. And once you're cleaned up, then yeah, maybe you can present yourself before the Lord. But what Jesus wants us to know is actually, if you're into him, the father looks at you and says, hey, don't overthink it. Ask me anything. I have a loyalty to you that will blow your mind. Last example I can think of this is that I was, picked up my daughter out of her crib on Friday and could tell she was still a little sleepy and then she likes to get her back scratched. And so I was scratching her back a little, but then my arm got tired and I thought maybe she fell back asleep. So I stopped scratching her back. And in about 0.5 seconds, she grabs my arm and puts it on her back. She put it on her back. I'm like, are you awake? And here's the thing. I'm committed. I've got a loyalty and a love for this baby so much so that I will scratch her back until my arm falls off. <laughs> because I love her with that kind of love. Your father loves you. You have been reconciled to your father because of the cross of Christ. And he has put you in a place where you can bank on that when you come to him with your heart. You don't have to overthink it. My daughter doesn't overthink. She doesn't think, is he going to judge me for this? She just scratched my back. Be there for me, and I will. This is your father. Come to him in prayer. This Christ overcame all the boundaries and barriers and difficulties between us. The last thing I want to point out to you, and I'll be brief, is this interaction that Jesus has there in 29 and 30 with the disciples. You know, in one foul swoop, he could really sum up an, an important uh, chain of events here by saying, yeah, I used to be with the Father, then I came into the world, then I'm going to leave it and return to the Father. Yeah, sure, just the entire story of the incarnation here, no big deal. And the disciples look at him and have this moment of clarity where they say, now we can see that you know all things. And that makes us trust you. That makes us believe. Why? Why is it when Jesus talks about all of these things and, and, and specifically talks about where he's headed and what's going to happen, does it cause them to feel like he's somebody they can trust? Well, think of it this way. If I'm lost in the woods, but I have somebody with me that knows where we're going, I'm not lost. All I have to do is trust them, that they know where, where we're supposed to go and follow them. The problem is, many of us live our lives in such a way where we're lost in the woods, not sure where we're going, and we run into a guide of this world that claims to know where we're going. 
and we are so loyal, we'll give them our water, we'll give them our, our, our food and lunch and say, yeah, sure, go take me where you want us to go. And we know <laughs> we're getting more and more lost in the woods and we're hungry and thirsty. We're worse off than we were before. I know it's a long analogy, but you get my point. It means something. When our guy says, I know where this is going, you don't have to figure out the ins and outs of how this is all going to work out. You don't have to put that stress and pressure on yourself. Just trust me and follow me. I know where this is going. So I have overcome. Just take my peace with you in that. Once we get away from following Christ in this way, we'll start to feel that pressure from the world again that says, you need to figure this out. You need to get all your ducks in a row. And I'm not advocating for being reckless with our lives again. I am just simply saying you can have a peace in your life that comes from trusting in Christ and knowing that he knows where we're going. He proves my point by even telling them, actually, in a few hours, you guys are going to abandon me. He even knows that. But even so, we all have our ups and downs like the disciples did. We all have our spots that keep us humble. And Jesus says, I even know this about you. And I want you to have my peace. And I want you to know that I got you. Be encouraged, for I have overcome the world. He has overcome everything that would cause us to feel afraid and need to control. He has overcome uh, everything in between us and the Father and put us in a place of phileo love with the Father. And he has also given us the hope of the resurrection, a joy that cannot be taken from us, and a vision for how to live our lives in light of that. Thank you, Jesus, for this. I've said these things to you so that you might have, my, have peace in me. Let's just pray for a moment about these things and let it sink in. Father in heaven, if there's anybody here who has just been, even for this last season of time, <laughs> has just felt an overwhelming sense of, of oppression and pressure on their hearts and their lives, they feel like they're just in a fog and lost Holy Spirit, would you speak to them today and say, uh, just follow me. Take the pressure off. Just sons and daughters here at the table of our Father, no pressure required. Just continue to live out what this kingdom is all about. Love one another. If there's any of us here who are feeling just uh, overwhelmed and oppressed by fear, Take the pressure off and, and remind us about resurrection. Remind us about that hope that we have. Maybe there's somebody here that just feels like they've been coming to you, but it's not as somebody who is in love or based on the foundation of love. Heavenly Father, just tell them how special they are to you. For the Father himself loves us. Encourage us then to continue to keep our eyes on you as we move forwards into this world, not necessarily knowing how this world is going to ever be or do, but not needing to because we know you do. We know you have a plan and we'll follow you. And at this time, is, does anyone have a verse that you'd like to share from the last few chapters that you could just speak out as encouragement over this group? Speak one out loud and proud.